You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I am so happy to be here today with Alan Kurzweil, author of Whipping Boy, The 40-Year Search for My 12-Year-Old Bully. 40-Year Search. Alan, why did it take so long? Well, full disclosure, I didn't actually start the search 40 years ago. I first met Caesar Augustus, the bully who is the centerpiece of this investigation, back in 1971. But I really only started asking that universal question, what happened to my childhood bully, in 1987. I was living with my then girlfriend, now my wife, in Paris, and we decided to take a couple of hours off from our work and look at paintings in the Louvre. And we were walking through the halls, and I was stopped dead by this extraordinary altarpiece. There in the, in the corner of the altarpiece, there was this little pa- panel, this flagellation of Christ. And my wife said, do you like that? And I, I said, no, I just, it's, it just makes me think of this time I spent in Switzerland. And she said, oh, and she knew because I had told her these stories. She knew about the traumas I had endured when I was a 10-year-old in this boarding school in Switzerland. And this scene of flagellation, this whipping of Christ, recalled the traumas I had endured when I was one of a few Jewish kids in an English boarding school in Switzerland. And I read this book, and I kept experiencing it through the lens of a parent. And I know that it was um, an exchange with your son that also very much influenced this search and, and prompted you to, to, to really begin this search in earnest. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Well, I'm a very different person now than I was when I started writing this book. Uh, and the reason is that Caesar, the, the focus of my inquiry, really brought me closer not only to my understanding of the traumas that I endured in Switzerland, but brought me closer to my, to my wife, to my son, and in many ways to my father, who had died when I was five years old. But to really understand the consequences of the relationship I had with Caesar, you have to really understand the things that happened in the tower of the dorm room where we shared a room for a year. So we only lived together for a few months, uh, but those memories linger. Uh, So many of the traumas were pretty mundane, but there were a few things I could not from my memory. And when my son was about the same age I was when all those horrible things happened, he too had run-ins with bullies. And so we forged an even deeper intimacy by working on a children's book together, in fact, that featured a bully, that featured an amalgam of the, the boy who made my life hellacious when I was 10 and the boy that my son Max had to survive when he was 10. I love that book, by the way. And so do you have advice for those who are experiencing bully as a result of this search and and everything that you've learned? 
Well, I'm I'm a, a writer, a novelist, a, a journalist. Uh, I hesitate to offer psychological counsel. I'm not really equipped to do so, despite the fact that both of my parents were born in Vienna. But I will say this, though I entered this search vengeful and really wanting to redress a karmic imbalance by tracking down Caesar, by hunting Caesar down, uh, eventually I realized that Caesar was a gift of sorts. And although we have a huge number of anti-bullying programs in schools and we have video campaigns about it gets better, I think missing from this entire discussion is the agency that we, as the victims of bullies, bring to a sense of recovery. In other words, it's not that it just gets better. I think a lot of us render our lives better because we actively engage with those traumas. You know, Michael Phelps became the champion swimmer that he became because of all the nonsense he endured when he was growing up. I was fascinated when I was researching this book to discover how many of the great writers, the ones I truly loved, had experiences very similar to mine at English boarding schools. I mean, it's a question worth asking. Would Dickens have written all those extraordinary novels about the misery of school systems if he hadn't endured a terrible childhood? And what about Charles Darwin? Same story. Roald Dahl, William Golding. I think there are dividends to be extracted from the the liabilities of a truly lousy school experience. Now, when you were writing Leon and the Championship, which is the book that you referenced that you that you worked with with your son, did you know? Did you feel at the time that you were telling this story, or did you not? And because I'm curious why you chose to write this as an adult nonfiction book. I mean, I I, I understand now the investigative piece, and it's, it's it's a fantastic book. But it is knowing you and your body of work. It's an interesting choice. I am by nature promiscuous in my interests. So I've written literary fiction. I've written children's books. I spent the better part of two years cooking up a science kit that's packaged inside a potato chip bag. And now I find myself writing a piece of what my editor calls an investigative memoir. Caesar has always lived with me ever since I was 10 years old. And when I was sitting down with Max to write Leon and Championship, I had the image, the grimace, the menacing features of Caesar burned in my, in my mind's eye. And in fact, when the illustrations came back uh, for that children's book, the only editorial suggestions I made were to render Lumpkin the Pumpkin, the bully based on Caesar Augustus, to resemble the boy I remember. Now, do you think that that was conscious or unconscious? That was absolutely conscious. Okay. I absolutely had him in my mind. Now, here's the thing. It's a lot easier, and it takes a lot less courage to write a work of fiction that allows you to alchemize all sorts of missing pieces and anxieties into a story that is completely, or so it seems, made up. But when you open up Whipping Boy, the first page says, this is a work of nonfiction. No names, 
have been changed. I think that's a huge distinction. I take issue with books that say some names have been changed to protect the innocent because they raise questions that are impossible to answer for the reader. And I wanted to remove those question marks from this manuscript. Mm -hmm. The reason I was able to include that declaration is another extraordinary component of how this book came about. When I started looking for Caesar, and it became clear there was a possibility that his adult life might be tethered to criminal activities, I was required to talk to U.S. attorneys, to officials in the Department of Justice, to U.S. postal inspectors, to criminal investigators, to defense attorneys. Every time I did, when I explained why I was pursuing this search, each one of them, without exception, gave me carte blanche to all manner of legal material. And you have to ask yourself, why? It's not because you're talking to some brilliant Woodward or Bernstein-like character. I'm not a particularly uh, gifted or tenacious journalist. But the one thing I shared with all of those guys is that all of them had Caesars in their past. Mm -hmm. And so when I showed them a photo of me as a 10-year-old with Caesar looming above me, and it's the photo that you see on the cover mm -hmm. of Whipping Boy, that opened the door. That was the key. And the, and the other thing that I think universalizes, I'm taking, a, sounding a bit pretentious, I apologize, but one of the sort of universalizing observations I made in the course of doing this research is that for whatever reason, and I can't explain it, we all remember those childhood injustices. We carry them with us always. All of those subsequent heartbreaks and problems that we have, we may be able to, to forget them and set them aside, but the childhood injustice is something that we seem to always retain. My son does, I do. And writing Whipping Boy was an opportunity to revisit and redress those injustices. That's beautiful. So now for the boy who might be experiencing those injustices currently, what book would you recommend to a 13-year-old boy? Goodness gracious. Well, at the risk of self-promotion, of course, Leon and the Spitting Image and Leon and the Champion Chip. Who? Roald Dahl is Roald one of my, yeah. my heroes. I think that he calls it as he sees it. I mean, perverse though some of his characters are and mean-spirited though many of them are, there is a transcendent truth and a, a beautiful narrative at, at the core of everything that he writes. And uh, they're all page turners. So what's your Desert Island book? It may be a cop-out, but it changes constantly. At the moment, it's going to sound totally obscure, but in the wake of reading this book on design called The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, oh, for goodness sake. I read another book called the Principles of Design. Oh. Tedious title, but it carries in it so many truths about how we live, how we see, and how we inhabit the universe. And it's a beautiful, little, cone-like book, just a, a gem that makes me see the world in ways I didn't see it before. Fantastic. And um, what book would you most want to see turned into a TV miniseries? 
it's much easier for me to answer the question, what book do you think should be made into a movie? And I have an answer for that. Go ahead. Okay. What is it? It's a book with an absolutely dim-witted title called Trustee from the Tool Room. What? It was printed in 1962. It's a posthumous work of Neville Shute. It is born. I don't know who Neville Shute is. Neville Shute uh, was the guy who wrote On the Beach, a pretty lousy movie with Fred Astaire, but a great book. He wrote A Town Like Alice. But Trusty from the Tool Room, I mean, it's got everything. It's got international 1950s travel. It's got buried treasure. It's got diamonds. And it has a beautiful love story between a 60-year-old a childless man and this little girl that he suddenly finds he's responsible for. And it's also a story of the love that people share with each other, paying it forward through the passions that they 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 have in common. And I can go on and on. But Fantastic. Let's hope it's it, still it, in print. It's barely in print, but it, it, it does. In fact, it's the one and only time in my life where I tried to find out who held the film rights. Is that right? The and, only time. And you can find out after all this. Now you're all you got all your chops going here. Now you I got know, you're all I know. warmed up. And and in fact, if I wanna if I wanna prove or reconfirm the fact that I'm constantly changing the kinds of yeah. writing I'm doing, maybe yeah, that be should be some, my next project. But, but for the moment, I think we have our hands full with Whipping Boy. I enjoyed the book so much. Thank you. I learned so much, and thank you. Thank you. Here is Alan Kurzweil reading the opening of Whipping Boy. Confession. You've been a menace and a muse, a beacon and a roadblock, my jailer and my travel agent. You have this uncanny habit of popping up in the most unexpected places, during a walk through the Louvre, at the back of a bar, in the lyrics of a Broadway show tune. If the Da Vinci Code shows up on TV, or if I'm playing foosball with my son, if I spot a certain kind of fountain pen or a particular brand of wristwatch, there's a good chance I'll find myself thinking of you. The prompts aren't always that subtle. A few years back, a credit card company website summoned the obsession directly with this password hint. Who was your arch rival when you were growing up? Without a second thought, I entered the name of the boy who entered my life when I was 10 years old, entered my life and reshaped it forever. C-E-S-A-R-A-U-G-U-S-T-U-S. Caesar Augustus. Rules and Ranks. Even if I hadn't bunked with a kid named Caesar Augustus, memories of the Swiss boarding school that brought us together surely would have stuck. The eccentric imperatives of the institution's forward-thinking founder and the exotic backgrounds of the teachers he employed, the daily meditations promoting liberty and the 36-page handbook that curtailed it, the lessons in swordsmanship and elocution, the alpine expeditions, the cold showers and soybean steaks, all of it was way too strange to forget. Established on a mountain plain high above Geneva in 1949, 
Eglon College was the brainchild of John Corlett, a headstrong, asthmatic Englishman with a singular vision of what boarding schools should be, regimented, yet free-spirited, full of fearless high-altitude adventure and moral enlightenment. J.C., yep, that's how the founder chose to be addressed, believed physical fitness and spiritual reflection nurtured body and soul, and that obedience was a prerequisite for independence. Freedom, he declared, is an exceedingly difficult commodity to handle. To do so requires very strict training and discipline, and at Eglon, such training and discipline are not only provided, they are enjoyed. Well, not by me, they weren't. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. Thank you.